Well, hey, good morning. Hey, it's great to see you guys here this morning. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to extend uh, my greeting and welcome uh, to you in addition to everything that uh, you've already heard. A special welcome uh, if you're a college student. Uh, colleges and universities are kicking back off, so a lot of college students coming back, so we're glad that you guys are here. Uh, Pastor Kent isn't here this morning, and so if you have any questions about college ministry, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. So, you know, it's all just that easy, so he'll come out and he'll be like, you said what? <laughs> so, hey, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to point you in the right uh, direction. So, hey, uh, we are headed into uh, this next week, uh, starting a new series. Um, it's kind of intro series next week. Uh, then the kickoff, kind of fall kickoff will be that next week on September 10th. But we are jumping into uh, the Gospel of Mark, which I'm really, really, really excited about. I'm really looking forward to just getting into a gospel for an extended period of time and looking at the life of Jesus. And so we got all the booklets. They're at the printer this week, so you'll get those next week. And so uh, really exciting time to kind of jump into that new series uh, together. So, But today, we are wrapping up a three-week kind of mini-series called Taste of Salem. And, and the way that that has been designed uh, is to kind of go at least point us towards this ministry market in the sense of like, hey, what's my next step? You know, like I feel disconnected. I need to be more connected. I want to be connected, um, whatever that is, you know, so that that first week we talked about, you know, kind of gathering weekly and just how important uh, and significant it is for us to gather on a weekly basis together at church and to hear God's word, to sing, to pray, to, to, to communicate and talk together, right? It's such an important part of the way that God has designed us. And so that's a weekly thing. But then there's also this last week that Ken talked about, maybe that next step is like, okay, I need to go one more step, and that's to, to connect regularly, right? And so maybe it's not a weekly thing. Maybe it's not even in every other week. Maybe it's a once a month. But, but we need to find a table space where, where we can actually share life with people. It's a little bit smaller setting, so we can really feel like we can actually share and be fully known and fully loved, like, and how important that is. Uh, and there's accountability as we really grow together and point each other to Jesus, right? Um, and so that's kind of like that next step, right? Connect regularly. Today, we take it one more step. It's a little bit deeper, a little bit more intense, and it's the idea of investing purposefully, and if it's perfectly in the season as school is starting and, and all those things. So for us and our family, uh, our daughter just started kindergarten this year, and boy, let me tell you, this week was a, like, an emotional roller coaster, not for her, but for me, you know? Like, it was just hard. You know, we took her... Um, that first day, which is on Thursday last week, and, and we took her in, and, and you know, and so like the whole morning, she's up and bouncing and ready and excited, and, and so like I'm happy, I'm, I'm scared, I'm sad, I'm, you know, tired, and you know, all these different emotions that I'm wrestling with in that moment as we take her into the school, and then Nikki like walks her to the cafeteria to get some breakfast, and I'm like, like two parents would be maybe weird in that context, and so I just like hung back and like had my arm on a table, and I was like watching watching from the corner kind of creepily, I guess. It's probably bad for my first day. But here I am as a dad and watching, and, uh, and I'm just soaking this all this in, and I hear behind me this, this really big dad. And he takes his kid, and he goes, there you go, son. And just like, pushes him out. And the kid's like, apparently he's done this before. He's like, see ya, you know, and he runs, and he gets his food. And the dad looks up, he's got a moment of pride in his face, and he looks at me and goes, 
walks away. I'm like, what just happened? You know, like what just happened? Like, who, who are you? Like, I wish, I wish I could do that because like I watched him go and he's like confident and I'm like in the corner going, <laughs> you know, like crying. My daughter is like leaving for the first time and yet I'm thrilled and excited, you know, and take her back into the classroom. And, you know, finally we get to leave and, you know, she's clinging to my leg. And so I have to like peel it and walk away. And, and I'm thinking maybe what's going to happen. I turn around and I look and there she is just sitting at the table, just coloring and eating her breakfast. And I thought, here she goes into the world, you know? And, uh, and for me in that moment, what was unique is that I started to process, like it was, in, it wasn't until like, I always know how much teachers do. If you're a teacher, thank you. Can I just tell you that, like, ahead of time? You know, if you're in the system, like, that's just huge because, like, in that moment, like, I've always known, but in that moment, it began to, to weigh in how many people it's going to take to invest in my daughter. Like, just like, I don't know you, I don't know you, I don't know you, I don't know you, but thank you. Can I just say thank you? I was like, I don't want to, like, walk out, big. thank you, thank you, thank you, random person, thank you, you know? Like, because there's so many people that would take to invest in my daughter. And as I'm processing and thinking about this week going, how does that, like, what, what within that actually correlates with and connects to the church? How do we invest purposefully in people, Right? No matter the age, right? it makes most sense with kids and youth and all the way up, but, right? but we all need to be invested in purposely. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at, at 2 Timothy um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Okay? And what we're going to find and, and kind of discover is this relationship between a guy named Paul uh, and, and this younger guy named Timothy. Okay? So here's where it starts in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. So he starts by identifying himself, like, hi, my name is Paul, and here's Timothy, my young Padawan, okay? You know, that's just a cool word. It's just another word for a disciple, but here's my mentee. Here's my trainee. Whoever it is, he's writing to Timothy. Here's what's unique about this, is that last week when Ken talked about connecting regularly, he looked at the letter from Paul to Philippi. And what Paul is doing in that moment is that he's writing to the entire church. He's writing to this collective body of people that he loves. And he's like, here's the deal. I love you guys. And it's right for me to feel this way because this is what the relationship God has given us. And you know, it's so, so good, right? But it's to a whole group of people. Here, Paul writes to one person, and it's to this young guy named Timothy, who he has been investing in for a long time, okay? So Paul, Timothy, let's just kind of discover kind of what happens here, right? So Paul, uh, you guys might remember Paul's initial name was... Saul, there we go. Now, we're, we're an interactive church today, right? Brady started it. I'm just going to continue it. Okay, so Saul uh, becomes Paul, right? Becomes a Christian. And then eventually, um, after many, many years, right, you know, he's sent off by the apostles and he becomes an apostle. He starts his missionary journeys. He starts in this city called Antioch, right? And he kind of comes out for this first missionary journey, kind of comes through Cyprus and he comes back up and here and he does a little bit here, you know, and then he kind of comes back. Okay, um, along the way, kind of right in here, right, there's many cities, but it's a pretty short missionary journey, right? But along the way, he's in this little city, this little spot called Lystra, okay? This is where Timothy is from, okay? Timothy is presumed, I mean, from our first letter, we know that Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness, which means that he's probably like 30 to 40 years old. It's not like he's 20 or 15 or whatever, right? This is a guy who's a little bit older in age, but it's a guy who's entering into this, this really like kind of this next stage in life, 
Okay? And so here he is in the Lystra. And presumably what happens is as Paul comes through and does this journey, this is where Timothy comes like to faith. This is where he, con- he has this conversion moment. He trusts Jesus, right? And then Paul kind of goes back. But here's what's unique about this is that Paul, on his second missionary journey, comes back through to, to, to Lystra. And in so doing, what he does is that there's this guy, him and Barnabas, and, you know, long story short, they split over a disagreement. Paul takes Timothy, and now Timothy is his guy. And for the next 15 years, this is what's crazy, for the next 15 years, Timothy is the sidekick. He's the Padawan. He's the disciple, the mentee, the trainee of Paul as he goes from city to city. So you begin to kind of see, like, the life that Timothy has been exposed to, because that second missionary journey, you know, he kind of comes up over here. He goes across, he comes down, you know, over here or somewhere, and then kind of gets right in here, and then eventually, oh, no, excuse me, comes back over here, and then he goes back home, okay? So it's kind of like the second missionary journey, and a part of that, what he does is he exposes him to this city called Ephesus, okay? That's just along the second route. Then you got the third route where he kind of comes up here, he kind of goes through the middle, he comes up over here, he kind of does this weird zigzag, and then kind of comes up, and then comes back across again, and then goes back all the way again. So that's kind of his third third missionary journey. But at the end of Paul's life, this is what's interesting, is that, okay, remember, this is the city, this is Lystra, this is where Timothy was born, right? Maybe a little bit more rural of an area, and yet at the end of 15 years of spending time with Paul, where does Paul leave him? He leaves him right here in Ephesus. Okay? And here's the context, right? Is that Ephesus is a growing city. It's a port city, so it's massive, it's huge, lots of commerce, lots of things. It's an ever-changing, dynamic, prolific city that was actually the capital of the Roman province in Asia. So it's a very important city, right? And so it's a growing city. And it, what's unique then to Ephesus as well is that it's actually the center of the cult worship for this gal, this goddess named Diana or Artemis. And so what happened? happened is they built this massive building, which was so big that it actually was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so here's Timothy from small town Lystra, who's been thrust into position of leadership over at Ephesus. But here's why. That's the context. You come all the way over here. Where's Paul? Paul's not even on this map because he's over here in Rome. He's in prison in Rome, way over here. And so what he's doing is that he's writing a letter to Timothy, who is here, and yet who was born here. Do you, do you understand the context now? Okay? And this is what's, this is what's interesting, because when you're Paul, you've just spent 15 years with Timothy. You're Paul, and you're in a Roman prison. Death is impending. It forces you to think about, what am I departing to Timothy? Now, here's the reality for you and I, all of us would probably always agree that who we invest in, how often we invest in them, and what we invest in them. All three of those are really important. Should we be doing that and and should we be thoughtful about that all of the time? Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thought we were on like the, go back and forth here. Okay, Um, that is true. We would probably agree that we should always do that and yet there are moments in life when our circumstances force us to think about it differently because Paul is about done with life. 
And that's a big deal. Because he's like, I just did life with Timothy for 15 years. I left him in Ephesus. What do I need to give him so that he can grow and flourish and thrive in this place? Because here's the deal, guys. Timothy, we, we think, we don't know, but Timothy as a younger guy, probably a little timid, maybe a little shy, right? And yet here's Timothy who's being thrust into a leadership position at Ephesus into this position that's far beyond his natural capacity, and yet it's also in the midst of a city, this diverse world, this diverse city that's rapidly and ever-evolving. And you go, that's the letter from Paul to Timothy, and can you just bridge the context for a moment and say, gosh, that sounds a lot like today. Because we live in a world that's rapidly changing and ever-evolving, and there's so much influence in the world that we should go, man, this forces me to think really seriously about how we're investing in the next generation. It's really, really, really important. And so here's how Paul describes his relationship with Timothy. Look at verse 3. It says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. It sounds a lot like the start to Philippians, doesn't it? Except it's not to a group of people, it's to one person. But it comes back to gratitude and thankfulness. There's joy in this relationship that God has given him, and yet Paul is constantly praying and thinking about Timothy. So even the fact that he's thousands of miles removed over in Rome is that he's praying for Timothy every day. He continues to invest even though he can't be there in person, right? And so this is who he identifies, right, these people. But then he goes on. It's like he gets into memory lane here. It's like, as I'm remembering these things, here's, here's the next thing. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. You see, you read that and you go, man, so apparently, we don't know what the moment was, but there was some moment of brokenness or weakness or sensitivity in which Timothy breaks down in tears. And Paul, as the mentor, comes to him and in comfort just goes, gosh, we're in this together. I love you. Can I encourage you, right? And we don't know what that was, but there's some moment in which that happened. You know, 13 years ago or so, when I was doing some youth ministry in Colorado, and, uh, and I was just starting there, and I was meeting a new guy, and his, this new guy who had just transitioned out, and his name was Dave, and he, was, he had done the middle school. Um, and he, every year, had done this thing called Super Dave, okay, which really, frankly, is totally as cool as it sounds. I mean, it was awesome, right? Really neat. It was like 300 middle schoolers would come together and they did an all-nighter, which I think is just crazy, but they did it. And so you have this massive thing and it's filled with fun. It's filled with the gospel. It's filled with all sorts of things. And at the end, as Dave is resigning, as he's moving into the next chapter of his life, the church says, we want to celebrate you. And so they bring Dave up to the front, just like we would here. And Dave came up, and they brought five students, and they said, come on up, we want you to share. And Dave admits to me, he says, when they were doing that, I was thinking that these students would each share how awesome and how amazing Super Dave was. And he's like, but boy, was I wrong. He said, one by one, each student came up and said, I remember the day that I was having a really hard week, and Dave took me out for ice cream. That's it. It's like, why? It's like, that's my legacy. 
You see, what we, what we learn in that is that people, we just like what we remember are those moments when we're in softness or, or brokenness or whatever it is, is tears or this, whatever it is that's coming out of us and somebody that we trust and love comes up and just, man, can I just, can I just hold on to you? Can I encourage you in that moment? And that's what Paul is remembering. He's like, I remember those tears. And by the way, he's like, I know I'm way over here, but everything inside of me just wants to come visit you because that's the best thing that I could think right now. That would bring me joy. And that's the importance and the significance of this relationship between Paul and Timothy. You know how many thousands of people Paul probably impacted? And he's like, here's the deal. I just want to be with you, Timothy. I want to be with you. I want to get to you so we can, we can continue our friendship in Jesus as we grow towards Christ-likeness uh, together, right? So he goes on, though, and he says, here's the deal. I'm also reminded, verse 5, of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so you got Paul, right? Paul's the spiritual friend in the story, right? He's the guy who came in at Lystra, preached the gospel, and Timothy, you know, has this conversion moment and gives his life to Jesus. But Timothy has a background. He has a family, a grandmother and a mother who love Jesus, you know? And so it tells us, like, just how important. It's not just spiritual friendships. It's spiritual family, right? The groundwork, the foundation of what Timothy had been exposed to in the gospel was present with him day in and day out with his grandmother and mother, and yet, if you, if you know anything about young people, you might know that this is true. Like, because when I was, in, when I was in, you know, in youth ministry for many years, and then these students would graduate, and they'd go to college, and then they came back, and I'd say, hey, hey how, was, how was your semester? And they're like, oh, it was so good. I remember this one moment when the speaker said this, and I was like, are you kidding me? I said that like a hundred times. Why is it that, oh, now that I'm in college, I get it. You know, like, and for me... Like, it was so hard, right? <laughs> but there's this reality about this spiritual friendship. Like, sometimes in life, like, you're a parent. Like, when I was growing up, and my parents would say something. I'm like, well, whatever. And then somebody is like, Brandon would say. He'd be like, hey, Seth, you're, oh, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Like, this is the way that we work. We need spiritual family, but we also need spiritual friendships. And when those two things go together, right, the investment doubles. And so it's incredibly important that we acknowledge both of, those, both of those pieces, the importance of family and friendship, spiritual family and spiritual friendships, okay? So but here's where we go on. So we move out of the introduction. We move into what's Paul's like, intent? Why is he writing this? Here's what he says in verse 6. It's very clear. He says, for this reason... I remind you, because up until this point, he's been thinking about me, right? He's like remembering memory lane. Here's what I remember. Oh, by the way, I'm going to shift to you. I am reminding you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. To fan to flame. Right? Do you get that? This is the intention. Like what Paul is doing is he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to fan to flame. And you're like a spiritual gift. Like there's this gift inside of him. Like the last thing that you would ever want is to get a gift that's like on fire, right? That's crazy. So he's talking about a spiritual gift. Now we don't know what that spiritual gift is. 
okay? That's between Paul and Timothy. They would have known. But I believe that every Christian has a spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift, whether it's one or two or three, whatever that looks like for you, when that is in combination with the way that God has wired you and in the location that God has placed you, you have been able or will be able to make an impact in this world across all of time in such a unique way that nobody else can ever do that. And so whether that's a, like a, a gift of leadership, maybe it's the, the gift of encouragement, maybe it's a, a gift of teaching, maybe it's the gift of discernment, maybe it's the gift of hospitality, Man, you're so good at loving on people, maybe it's the gift of prophecy, calling people back into right relationship with God, maybe it's the gift of service, and you're like, man, I could just serve all day long. I don't know what your gift is, and I don't know what Timothy's gift is, because the text doesn't tell us. But here's what we do know, is that that word fan to flame in the Greek means this, it means rekindle. And so what you get this picture, this image in your mind, is if you're out camping or you got a, like, a, like a fire pit in your backyard and as that wood continues to burn down, you get to the bottom and you see these glowing, brilliant embers and there's no flame. But there it is. And what it takes is to get down and and to inject oxygen into the environment so over and over and over that it combusts and moves back into flame and it reignites. And all of a sudden, you compel, you, you contrast this idea of something that's diminishing to something that's flourishing and growing and consuming. And that's, that's the idea. And that's what Paul's intention is here. He's like, here's what I want to do. Timothy, I want to see those embers come back to life and to use them in the way that God has designed you to be used in the world that God has called you to be. And he goes on, he finishes that, sen that sentence or that thought, and he gives explanation, right? He says, I remind you to fan to flame, but which is in you through the laying on my hands, but he says it's for, for God, or because God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Like, you hear that, and you see this natural contrast, right? Right? Is that God gave us a spirit of something that is powerful and courageous and really, really good. And yet what we can oftentimes do is that we can just let it die down. And we got to fan to flame. Because what God desires is for that to be used. When I was growing up, um, like elementary school age, um, loved Star Wars, um, probably many of you guys do, and, and, uh, and so I had gotten, I don't remember where I got it, but I got this massive Millennium Falcon, which was probably just way too big for a kid my size anyways. You know, just imagine like a, you know, a, a five-year-old, you know, just trying to hold this thing this big, you know, and fly it around the room, and, and, uh, and so but what was so neat, and tool, or, toys were so like basic back then, it's like two pieces, right? But inside of that, there was a spot for a battery. And when you injected the battery into that, it transformed from lame Millennium Falcon to pew, 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 you know? And you could like fly it around and make noise. It's like you're trying to like, you're like moving from fantasy into like, like almost like less real fantasy because you're like, you want it to become reality, you know what I'm saying, as you're playing with this. And here's the deal, like that toy without batteries was cool, but with batteries, it was so much better. 
It was the way that it was designed to be used. And I think that if I were to compare this now, like part of what I think is that God is like, he's like, I give you this gift. I give you a spiritual gift. You're like, man, this is meant to be used. It's so good. Yeah, and he's like, and yet here's the power. Here's the battery and here's the source. All you got to do is put that battery in. And yet, what we oftentimes do is out of fear, out of fear, we take those batteries and we go, how is this going to change my life? So I kind of just tuck those batteries into my pocket because I'm content with it the way that it is. And what God's like, hey, this is not the way, like, that's a great gift, but I'm giving you something to make it even better. The power with which you can use your gift in the world that I've called you to live. And it forces us to think about the positive rather than the negative. It's not just about how it's going to change my life. It's about how is this going to change my life in a great way? How is this going to change the kingdom? Rather than, ah, I just don't know that I'm ready for that type of a thing. And so if we come back to like our start over here, right? Like what we find is that in the intro, right, we find this relationship between two people, Paul uh, and, and Timothy, right? That's not right. There we go. Right? Yep. Okay, close. Um, you know, that's the intro. You have this, these two people, Timothy, and here's the intent. The intent is what? Is to fan right, to flame, right, or fan into flame, right? That's what he's trying to do. And so as you think about this, this is what's leading us into, into the rest of this uh, invitation, what he's going to talk about next. But as we look at this, we go, gosh, like, think about the good that can happen. When people are in this type of relationship between Paul and Timothy, think about how much incredible stuff can happen. But here's the flip side. What do you lose if you're not in that relationship? If you don't have someone like that, what do you lose? If you do have someone like that, what do you gain, right? All of a sudden, it forces us to rethink, right, just how important these types of relationships are. This is where he goes into the invitation in verse 8. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Okay, that's where he, like, just to pause there for a second. Let's just talk about this idea of, like, to be ashamed. Like, what, what does it mean to be ashamed? Or what really is shame, you know, as we think about this? I think for many of us, we actually oftentimes confuse the idea of guilt and shame. Um, and so, as I learned this way back when in seminary, um, but when you think about guilt, guilt is something that, you know, that you feel in, in your soul, your being, your conscious, you know, like when you do something that is willfully wrong, that you know breaks the commands of God, when you are in the wrong but with his moral and divine ethical will right? When you know you've done something wrong, you feel guilty because it's about breaking the law, breaking that. Shame is an association of feeling that comes with that that's fearful about how that relationship now exists. What is that person going to say? How are they going to respond to me? Will they ever invite me back into right relationship again? So if you're dealing with somebody in life who's dealing with guilt, here's what you need to know. Guilt needs forgiveness. That's what it needs. Don't confuse it with shame, because shame, if you're dealing with somebody who has shame, shame needs acceptance, okay? And it's a fine line between the two, and sometimes they, they very much overlap, but they're both very important as you deal with that, right? But when you think about this, right, what does Paul say? He doesn't say, do not feel guilty about the gospel. He says, do not be ashamed 
of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the testimony that you have in Christ. And the reason why he says that is that I think that for so often, for us as Christians, is that when we think about the world, when the world sees us or identifies us as people who identify with the gospel, that automatically means that my relationship with them is broken, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to maintain the relationship as is. And so we are ashamed of the gospel in that way, shape, or form. You know, we live in a shame culture, right? Like, this is just the world that we live in. You know, like, you could could go to, I don't know, Taco Bell and be like, hey, I'm going to combine my Mountain Dew and my Dr. Pepper canceled, you know? Like, I don't know. Like, this is the silliest things that you can get canceled for in today's world. Cancel culture, right? It's a shame culture that we live in. So I understand how hard that actually is. And yet Paul's invitation is to not be ashamed of the gospel. You know, I was in Charlotte once, uh, we used to live in Charlotte, and I went to a coffee shop, and there was a guy uh, who came in, and he unpacked his stuff, and I was sitting, like, in the side, and didn't see it for a little bit. He, you know, clunks out everything, shunk, you know, gets his laptop and starts typing away, and, and then I look up and a few minutes later, and I see on the backside of his computer is this massive sticker that says this. It says, I'm a pastor. Ask me anything. And I thought... That's really good. How many of you, don't answer this, but how many of you would buy a sticker that's for, the, for your computer for when you go out that says, I'm a Christian, ask me anything? Because the degree, this is, this is not meant to shame, but this is for us to really process, because the degree that we actually answer that question might actually indicate a level that we're ashamed of the gospel. There is a truth to that. As we think about, we think about that, why, why not be ashamed, right? Romans 1.16, Paul says, right, that the, that the gospel, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He's like, the reason why I'm not ashamed is because what I have is what everybody needs. And so what the gospel demands of you and I is this, is that it demands that we put what people need over what we want, The gospel always demands that, that we would put what other people need, which is the salvation component, over what I want. I want to keep the world at bay. I want to maintain this relationship. The gospel says, "Mm mm-mm, nah-uh, you got to break that door. You got to go in. Do not be ashamed. Guys, comfort Christianity is not a real thing. Comfort Christianity was invented by a lazy person a long time ago who woke up one day and said, hmm, man, this Jesus thing's really hard. What if I didn't have to do that? That's not a thing. That's, not a, that's just not a thing. No. That's not the way that the gospel is designed. And so as Paul, is, he's, he's doing, he's like, hey, don't be ashamed of the gospel. But by the way, don't also be ashamed of me just because I'm in prison. So there's a what component and there's a who component. The what is the gospel. The who is Paul, right? You know, we can be ashamed of people, can't we? Like when I was, um, I was growing up, my dad had the most worst like dad jokes, like the worst dad jokes ever. And he, we'd always have like the basketball team or the football team or whatever. They'd be over in our house and my dad would walk into the room and all I had to do was see the look on his face and I was like, oh no, here it comes. And he would do, he'd say something, and everybody laughs. And I'm like, why are you laughing? That's not funny. And yet, a couple years ago, I went to the, to the grocery store, and the clerk said, hey, would you like your milk um, in bags? I said, no, you can leave it in the cartons. <laughs> and I was like, what have I become? 
Like shame is a real thing. Like you can be ashamed of people. And yet when I look at my dad in those moments as he was a senior pastor and I remember moments where he would do the Christian thing and I'm like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. If you do that, you say that thing, they're gonna associate us as those people. Don't do it, right? We can be ashamed of these people, not just the gospel and how those two things come together, right? But Paul makes this really clear invitation. He says this, instead of being ashamed of the gospel, here's a radical idea, but this is really good. What if you shared in suffering for the gospel by the power of God? What if instead of being ashamed of the gospel, you shared in the suffering? How many people have you met in life where you're like, hey, how's life? And I'm like, actually, it's pretty good. You know, I feel like I could just use a little bit more suffering. Oh, <laughs> nobody ever. You know, no one, like suffering is not fun. You live with somebody else or in you, you're like, man, yeah, I need some more of that. No, wrong. Nobody does that because suffering is hard. And yet what Paul says is here's what the gospel does is that it compels us because of how good the gospel is, it compels us to suffer or to be open to and to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Which, by the way, I love this. When he says share in the suffering, guess who else is suffering? Paul, where is he at? In prison, in Rome, across two oceans. He's like, hey, we're doing it together. Even though I'm not there with you, we are suffering together. It's an invitation. And he's like, by the way, Timothy, if you don't remember, can I just tell you it's worth it? Because in 9 and 10, he describes the gospel. Here's what he says. He says, really, Jesus saved us. Or God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who, by the way, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And you read that, and can I just ask you a question and just say, do you realize how loved you really are? Because, like, I think sometimes in life, you know, if somebody were to ask me that, I'd be like, well, yeah, 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 I remember, you know, yesterday I stubbed my toe and I said something I probably shouldn't have, you know, you know, Jesus forgets me, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, that's true, but let me just say, hey, if you got the time, why don't you take a journal and capture every single sin in all of its detail for one day and then tell me you don't see it differently? Do it for a week. Do it for a month, do it for a year. And as you see, the stacks begin to fill up and remember that you're keeping a record of wrongs and yet God says, I keep no record of wrongs. And by the way, I take your sin and I remove it as far away from the east as I do from the west. Then you read that and you go, amen. That's when you say, that's the gospel. And so I ask you again, do you realize how loved you really are? The question then that follows is how much does that love compel you? How much does God's love compel you? Look at verse 11. Paul's like, here's the deal. Timothy, I get it. When, when God's love compels you, hard things can happen. He says, for which I was appointed. He's talking about the gospel. The gospel was the reason why he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see, what Paul does in this 
is that he makes this invitation. And the first one is this, no shame. That's an invitation, no shame. And he's inviting Timothy. Then what does he do? He says, and there's, there's suffering. He, there's this invitation to suffering. But then Paul goes, and in verses 9 and 10, he goes and he makes it the center of that is the gospel. Do you see how this is going? But then he brings it back because, oh, by the way, guess what? I'm suffering, and oh, by the way, I'm not ashamed. You can do this, and we can do it together. That's Paul's message to Timothy. Do you see that? Do you see? And has all centered in the gospel. It's centered in the person and the works and the life of Jesus Christ, whom we are called to. And so I ask this question of myself, does shame or suffering characterize you? Does shame or suffering characterize you? Because God's greatest goal in our life is not to make us comfortable. The peace that we get from God does not equal comfort. Is peace comforting? Absolutely. Is it comfortable? Not really. Because that's not the life that Jesus lived. And we have to remember, gosh, guys, that you and I will never be more loved or less loved than we are right now. That doesn't grow. It doesn't diminish. God's love is perfect. It's everlasting. It's overflowing from beginning to end. You are so loved, and it goes so much further than you can ever, ever grasp. And yet he also says, but it's not a free pass. Would you join me in changing the world. I want to build my kingdom through you. You see, the gospel changes our identity. We go from an old creation to a new creation. That's the way that it is. And yet, in today's world, we can identify with whatever we want. We can identify with different genders. We can def- um, identify with different races. We can identify with sexual preferences. We can identify with those things. And here's the thing, is that the way that I see life, that's the way that I want it, and so I can identify with that. That's the easy route. The gospel doesn't allow that because the gospel causes us to form to the gospel, not to our desires, And I think it's easy. We have to push pause because as soon as I talk about those things in which people identify in today's world as Christians, we can be like, whoa, that's just wrong. And we can criticize. And yet, I would say this to myself included, though, do you identify with the real gospel? Because it's easy to identify with a gospel that serves you and me. And if it's a gospel that doesn't include suffering, you're doing the same thing as other people in this world. The people that we would so easily criticize, maybe we should criticize ourselves. Because the gospel demands those types of things in our life. And so this is where we go back to this relationship between Paul and Timothy, and he ends with these two things. He says, here's the deal. And I'm not going to go through them because I don't have the time, right? So he says, no, like fan into flame, no shame. There's suffering. By the way, the gospel is at the center of it. Oh, but by the way, I'm suffering with you and I'm not ashamed. You can do it. We can do it together. By the way, he says, here's these last two things. Follow the pattern. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words. He's like, here's the deal. I'm way over here in Rome. You lived with me for 15 years, but now that I'm removed from you, here's what I can do. I can 
I can draw out and sketch out for you in my words the way that the gospel is and the way that the gospel is designed to change you in the world. I can do that from afar. Follow the pattern of my words. The last thing is this. I want you to guard the gospel. I want you to think about the next generation, and I want you to guard it. I want you to think about the people that God has given you, and I want you to guard it. Guys, I want to do one final thing as we kind of wrap this up. Is that for many of us, as we think about investing in life, right? So for many of us, we think maybe we, this is the moment when we come to know Christ or whatever that is. And we have this, this weird notion that following Jesus looks like this. <laughs> and if I don't, if I'm not growing in a perfect, right, and symmetrical straight line, then I have no business investing in somebody else. Here's the deal. I think that spiritual growth is probably more like this. You think that represents your life maybe a little bit better than this one? Because there's moments when you're up, there's moments when you're down, right? There's moments when you go, man, I thought I would never do that again. God, I said I would never do that again. Yeah, here I am. Oh, but here's where I'm at now, right? And all of a sudden, we begin to see that spiritual growth is in this way. And maybe there's a reality, maybe there's a reality that there are seasons in our life where we shouldn't be investing in people. And I get that, and maybe that's true, and you need to discern that with the Lord. But I also think that, that being vulnerable and authentic in our struggles is part of investing in people. Here's what I think is interesting, right? When you look at the world, the world runs on, on, on influence, right? Like there's marketing, there's advertising, there's social media influencers, right? It's all about influence. Influence is the idea of trying to affect, change or affect a person's attitude, thinking, or behavior, right? The world thrives on influence that somebody can post a video from thousands of miles away and you can watch it and go, click, I'm in. That's influence, Okay, that's influence. The world runs on that. But here's what I think is that sometimes in church, what we do is that we have these different patterns, right? You got person A and you got person B over here. And we have this tendency to walk into church and say this, is that I just hope that by being in the same place that I can have influence on somebody else. Guys, here's the deal. Influence can be really, really good. Some of you guys, I'm watching you and you don't even know it. That sounds creepy, but it's true in a good way, okay? Because I want to see what you're doing and how you're following Jesus, okay? But here's the thing, right? We have this tendency to over-rely on influence, and we only allow influence to do what only investing can really do. Here's my question. What if instead of influence in this gap, we did this, and we took stories, and we began to overlap them, and you begin to point Here's where John stepped into my life. Here's where Brandon stepped into my life. Here is where my dad did that. Here's where my dad did that back here. Here's where my dad did that back here. Here's where Jimmy did this over here. And all of a sudden, you begin to see the way that God has used people, key and critical people in your life. Who are the people in your life? Who are the people in your life who are fanning to flame the gift that's been given to you? Who are the people who are challenging you? Hey, don't step back. Don't in fear. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Hey, don't be afraid of the suffering. By the way, I'm going to remind you over and over, here's the gospel. Oh, by the way, I'm doing that with you. Follow the pattern of my words. Who's doing that? 
You know, at Salem, we, we sometimes talk about this idea of hand up, hand down. Hand up means these are the people that I'm holding on to who are helping me follow Jesus. The hand down is those that I'm helping follow Jesus. And so as I think about this, guys, we have got kids ministry. We've got youth ministry. We've got college ministry. We've got young adults. We've got young marrieds. We have people all across the age, like, like, scale, right, who are desperate for relationships with a person who says, let me invest in you. And so I want to give you guys this, this, final, this final big idea, and it's this, or just this final challenge. Don't let the gospel and the life that comes with it stop with you. Don't do it. Don't let it stop with you invest in somebody. So as we finish up, as you go out after this service and for the next couple of weeks, as you go back to that ministry market, you're going to find ways to how do I gather weekly? How can I connect regularly? And how can I invest purposely? And wherever it is for you, I hope that you can find your spot as we move into Mark together starting this next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we wrap up this morning, Lord, I pray that you would be just tugging on our hearts and that you would be forcing, that you would be pounding into our hearts with this, this, this loudness and asking, do you realize how much I love you? And may that love, would that begin to resonate deeper and deeper? Would it consume our hearts? Would it consume our being? And would that love begin to compel us in new ways? And so, Lord, in this next season, I don't know what all is going on in this room. I don't know the people who are like, got their hand up. They're, they're drowning in the water, and they've got their hand up saying, will somebody take my hand? And there are people in this room who are like, I'm in a lifeboat and I can help. And so, Lord, whatever is going on in this place, Lord, I pray that you would bring us together. But at the center of those relationships would be Jesus and the great love in which you love us. In your name we pray. Amen.